True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Base Podcast with your host, Steve. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to our 21st case together. If you've enjoyed the show so far, please remember to subscribe on your chosen podcast directory and all the new episodes will automatically download for you upon release. The case this week takes me back down under to Australia. I've had a request from some of my listeners for me to do a few more international cases, so as per normal, you have asked and I have listened. This is one of the cases which was suggested when we had that competition a few weeks ago. My mum always warned me when I was younger, forewarned is forearmed. And unfortunately, that's an excellent mantra to go into this episode with. In the AMAs that I've been doing on the Facebook page, one of the questions that I'm regularly asked is, are there any cases that you wouldn't cover? Well, ladies and gentlemen, this episode today is the closest that I have come in the year that I've been writing to jacking a case in because it's been too much for me to research. But on reflection, what happened to the poor victim in today's case unfortunately still goes on in the modern day, so I decided to continue. I'm warning everybody now that this case will probably leave a bad taste in your mouth. It involves crimes of a sexual nature against a teenager, as well as language and terms which I will let you use your discretion over. Anyway, without any further ado, this is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve, and this episode has been written in memory of Lee Lee. Lee Renea Mears was born on the 24th of July 1975 and was the daughter of Robin Lynn Monsell and Robert William Mears. She was born in the Australian city of Stockton in New South Wales. Lee's family life does not appear to have been very easy. Her grandmother revealing to criminologist Kerry Carrington that Lee had lived with her between 1979 and 1983 in Killaburn Bay in New South Wales. During this time, she attended St. Patrick's School in the town of Swansea, which is across the Lake Macquarie from Killaburn Bay. I just need to set the scene for you a little bit here. You are going to hear the name Kerry Carrington a lot in this episode. Dr. Kerry Carrington worked out of the University of Western Sydney and was subsequently responsible for writing a number of papers in relation to this case 
to support the family in a civil claim in the aftermath of the tragedy. So a lot of the information has been used quoting her as a source. Robin and Robert divorced between 1982 and 1983 and Lee moved back in with her mother and her new sister Jessie who had been born in 1983. As a result, Lee took her sister's father's surname and therefore became Lee Lee. At this time, she attended Hamilton North Public School. Despite having moved back in with her mum, Lee spent most of her weekends and school holidays with her grandmother at her house. Her cousin, who was also her best friend Tracy, stated that she and Lee enjoyed going to the cinema together as well as roller skating and just hanging about. She made a further change of primary school when the relationship ended between Robin and Jessie's father and she ended up at St Peter's School in Stockton. When her mother started a new relationship with Brad Sherman, she moved the family to Fullerton Road in Fern Bay in a flat owned by the Housing Commission of New South Wales which is the equivalent of a council flat in the UK or the housing projects in the US. The flat was near the Stockton Ferry Terminal. Lee was now 14 years old and was a Year 8 student at Newcastle High School. In Kerry Carrington's book, Who Killed Lee Lee, where I'm getting a lot of the research from, her aunt stated that Lee wanted to be a veterinarian and described her as a typical teenager. Just so you have an idea geographically, New South Wales is the southeastern Australian state, distinguished by its coastal cities and national parks. The state capital is Sydney, and the cities of Newcastle and Stockton are 161 and 173 kilometres respectively north of Sydney. On the 3rd of September 1989, a student from her school, Jason Robinson, had a 16th birthday party and the whole of Year 10 was invited. But like most high school parties, the invite filtered down to the younger age groups. The party was being held at the North Stockton Surf Club, a building which had been saved from ruin four years prior by the Stockton Lions Club and was now used as a hall to host parties. Lee had a written invitation to attend the party and her mother gave the eager teenager permission to stay there until 11pm. Lee's mother had been assured that responsible adults would be present at the party. Lee was very excited as it was the first teenage party she had attended. On the contrary to what her mother had been told however, Matthew Webster and Guy Wilson who acted as bouncers, were the only people aged over 18 at the party. According to the later accounts of partygoers, the night was one of debauchery. Most of the attendees were Year 10 students from Newcastle High School, though two 10-year-olds were also seen at the party at one point. Many were drinking alcohol and smoking marijuana, and some were openly having sex. The issue was, of course, that Lee and girls of her age had not been invited by the older boys because of their personalities and the things they had in common. 
Just a word of warning, peeps. Things from here on in get a little bit challenging to hear. I want to report it as accurately as I can, so I'm asking you if you're able to, to persevere. Lee was one of several underage people who attended that party for whom an adult had purchased alcohol for before it. She and her friend had been given a bottle of Jim Bean whiskey and they had mixed it with Coca-Cola. A number of witnesses would later testify that she had become intoxicated very quickly. Lee took the fancy of a 15-year-old boy who, for legal reasons, could not be named and was referred to in the official documentation as NC1. The boy is quoted to have said, I'm going to go and fuck, and shortly afterwards he left the party and headed the short distance to the beach with Lee. Subsequent accounts from people at the party stated she was so intoxicated they had to almost carry her. When Lee returned from the beach, she was bleeding from between her legs. She appeared to also be distressed, crying and seeking for help from anyone. Some people at the party tried to console Lee and find out what had happened to her. Lee, through the tears, said she had been raped, replying, He fucked me and I hate him. She also mentioned how she feared she was now pregnant. As has been previously mentioned, this was an unsupervised party, with the two in-air-quotes bouncers supervising the events. After witnessing Lee's complaints, Webster is quoted as saying to a group of boys, She's a bit of a slut, and why don't all of us have a go? Guy Wilson then approached Lee, placed his arm around her and asked her for sex. Lee rejected his advances and Wilson pushed her to the ground. He was joined by Webster and around ten other boys who surrounded Lee. They yelled abuse at her, kicking her and pouring beer on her. The group then spat both beer and saliva on her. Several people witnessed the assault, yet nobody came to help her or attempted to contact the police. The assaults continued for approximately five minutes. Lee was eventually able to stand when they had stopped and staggered away before picking up an empty beer bottle and throwing it at the group of boys, missing them. Guy Wilson threw a beer bottle back at her as she left, which also missed. The group of boys followed her inside the crowded clubhouse where she sought refuge. Ad hoc similar assaults continued throughout the night. Eventually Lee was seen leaving the party after all the abuse she had suffered and walking in the direction of the beach at about 10.30pm. Lee's stepfather Brad arrived at the party to pick her up at 10.50. When she did not meet him, with the assistance of several other partygoers, they searched for Lee but she could not be found. After repeated search attempts with more people joining in each time a new one started, Lee's mother and stepfather decided to wait for her at home, assuming that she had gone to a friend's house for the night without telling them. The following morning, Brad Sherman returned to the surf club. 
Lee had still not returned and they were now concerned. Aided by several of the people that had attended the night before, they searched the surf club and the surrounding beach. It was during this search that Lee's stepfather made the devastating discovery of Lee's body in the sand dunes about 90 metres north of the surf club. The invite to the party that she had been so excited to attend was still sticking out of her shorts pocket. She had been found naked except her socks and shoes. Her underwear and shorts were around her right ankle. She had been left laying on her back with her legs apart in a sexually explicit pose. Her bra clasp was damaged with the securing hook having been bent. It was found nearby as were the shirt and jumper she had been wearing the night before which were intertwined inside out and stained with liquor. The bushes nearby had been flattened According to the police forensics report, a blood-stained rock weighing 5.6 kilograms, which is 12 pounds, was found next to her. Bloodstains were found up to 2.8 metres from her body, indicating a prolonged, ferocious attack. The investigation into Lee's murder was conducted by the Newcastle Homicide Squad a part of the Regional Crime Squad, North Region, under the supervision of Detective Sergeant Lance Chaffee. The officer next in seniority to him during the initial stages of the investigation was Detective Sergeant Elwyn Douglas, who was the officer in charge of detectives at Mayfield Police Station, the local precinct. With the inclusion of other detectives from the Regional Crime Squad, local area detectives and plainclothes police. A total of up to 20 police officers became involved in the initial phase of the investigation. When Lee's body was found on the morning of the 4th of November, police sought to identify every person who had been at the party the night before. Ultimately, they had managed to interview a large number of the young people who had attended but more on that in a minute. The local media who was starting to get wind of the crime had descended on Stockton. At first, a couple of stories reported that Brad Sherman was actually a suspect. The most popular rumour was that Brad Sherman was sleeping with Lee for some months before her death. They claimed he had found Lee walking along the beach after the party when he was due to pick her up, and the allegation was that he became overcome with rage when she told him about the sexual assault. His rage turned to violence, and he murdered her. Detective Sergeant Chaffee admitted that the rumour had been told so often to the police that Brad Sherman actually became the prime suspect. The post-mortem of Lee was conducted within 48 hours. The report stated that Lee's cause of death was a fractured skull and injury to the brain. She had been struck with great force several times, including at least three times to the head. The post-mortem also found that Lee had asphyxial hemorrhages, 
which is when the veins are often more prominent when the oxygen has been cut off to the brain. There was also multiple injuries to the jaw, ribs, liver and right kidney. Lee had injuries consistent with fingers on her throat, indicating that she had been choked before she died, though this was not the cause of death, but it was consistent with her eyes. Toxicology reports showed that Lee's blood alcohol level was 0.18, which, as a comparison, is 60% over the drink-drive limit, a level which would have caused significant impairment of coordination and loss of good judgement. There was no doubt that Lee was violently sexually assaulted before she was murdered. During the post-mortem, there was evidence which indicated that prior to the night of the murder, she was a virgin. Lee had deep bruising to the left wall of her vagina, as well as extensive bruising to her hymen and two tears one 20 millimetres long to her vulva. An analysis of the post-mortem was conducted by Dr Johan Duflu, Deputy Director of the New South Wales Institute of Forensic Medicine. It stated that an inflexible object, possibly a beer bottle, was likely to have caused most of her genital injuries. No semen was found on her body. On the 12th of November, the Sydney Morning Herald led with the story that there had been a new lead in Lee's death. The report stated that detectives wanted to trace two schoolgirls who had fought off their attackers the night that Lee was murdered. The police believed that there was a connection between Lee's attack and the attempted abduction which had taken place at 3am, four and a half hours after Lee had been last seen. By the 15th of November, police had narrowed their list of suspects significantly. They believed that Matthew Webster, Guy Wilson and NC1 were the three people most likely to have been responsible for her murder and or were aware of who was involved. In initial police interviews, which had been conducted on the 5th of November, when the police were trying to corral everybody who had been at the party, NC1 admitted to having sex with Lee, but said it was consensual. Wilson had initially denied any wrongdoing, though in a later interview he admitted to pushing Lee, pouring beer over her, spitting on her, and throwing an empty beer bottle at her. Webster had admitted to pouring beer on Lee, but denied sexually assaulting her or killing her. He originally told the police that he was at a pub after the party. On the 15th of November, at approximately 5pm, NC1 was arrested on Mitchell Street in Stockton, he was taken by the arms by three police officers and placed in the back of a police car. He was then driven to Stockton Police Station where one officer got out and spoke to another officer before re-entering the car 
and NC1 was taken 13 miles to Newcastle Police Station to be interviewed. The record of interview shows that NC1 was interviewed by Detective Douglas and Detective Yeomans, who acted as typist. It also records that Detective Cunningham and NC1's mother were also present. The document further indicates that the interview commenced at 10.34pm and was concluded at 11.18pm. Part of the interview went as follows. Did you ask Lee to go down to the beach with you? She asked me. What did she say? She said, let's go down to the beach. What happened then? I was just kissing her and that. Then she just asked me if I wanted to do it. What did she say? Let's do it. What happened then? We did it. What did you do? A route. A route, in this context, is an Australian derogatory term for having sex with someone, along the lines of the term shag and screw. On the same day, the two bouncers were also taken to Newcastle Police Station, where they were each interviewed and charged with offences relating to the events preceding to the murder. Matthew Webster was sitting with his friend Adrian at the time when the police approached him. In a statement, Adrian recalled that on the 15th of November, two men he assumed to be police officers spoke to Webster and said words to the effect of, Matt, we are re-interviewing everyone in relation to Lee Lee's murder, and we would like you to come down to the station with us for a further interview. It will only take five minutes. He went on to state that Webster responded by saying, Righto, and walked off between the two police officers. Matthew Webster was interviewed on the 15th of November by Detectives Plant, Graham, Thurbon and Loy. The entry in the custody diary does not indicate what time Webster was taken from Stockton to Newcastle or the time that the interview took place at Newcastle Police Station. Also a strange occurrence was that no record of interview was made that night, though Webster did complete two handwritten statements relating to the assault of Lee and the supply of cannabis. Guy Wilson had been interviewed by Detective Connolly and Detective Hetherington on the 5th of November as part of the police efforts to interview all of the people who had attended the party on the night of Lee's murder. On the 15th of November, having obtained information from other people at the party about Wilson's involvement in the assault of Lee prior to her murder, police re-interviewed him. While he was on his way home from the Gladstone Hotel, he was approached by a number of police officers who said that they just wanted to make further inquiries into the murder. Just like his cohorts, Wilson was taken by police from Stockton to Newcastle for the interview. Following his interview, he too was charged with assault. Webster and Wilson were kept in custody overnight and they were bailed by the magistrate at the court the following day.
the records indicated that the bail determinations for the two were made by Senior Sergeant Collins. Webster's sentencing hearing was scheduled for the 21st of February 1990. NC1 was released on bail into the custody of his mother after being charged with sexual assault and the supply of cannabis resin to people at the party. On the 28th of January, whilst on bail, Webster was taunted by four boys regarding the murder. As a result, he assaulted one of them and was arrested again. On the 31st of January, Lee's stepfather, Brad Sherman, approached Wilson after seeing him in public. The two men had an altercation and Brad punched Wilson in the head three times after Wilson allegedly told him he would get Lee's younger sister next. Brad Sherman was subsequently charged and pleaded guilty to assault. By the 16th of February, the team investigating the murder of Lee had determined a strategy to further the investigation. They arranged for Webster and Wilson to be present at Newcastle Police Station, where they would be left alone together in a room fitted with a listening device. The use of the listening device had been authorised by a warrant which they had obtained. The listening device would be installed in an interview room at the police station. Police surveillance teams were directed to locate the two individuals and that afternoon teams were sent out to collect Webster and Wilson. Webster was picked up on the way to a doctor's appointment. Detective Kane, who was part of the regional crime squad north at Newcastle Police Station, recalled the arrest. I quote, I was requested by either Detective Connolly or Detective Chaffee to go to Stockton, locate Matthew Webster and bring him back to Newcastle Police Station. The tone of the request was that Matthew Webster was to be arrested and returned to the police station. He recalled that the vehicle he was in with Detective Connolly pulled up beside Webster in a street in Stockton and Detective Connolly had a conversation with the youth and that Webster was informed that he was under arrest and that he was going with them. At that time, Webster started to call out to other people in the street and began to struggle. He recalled Webster called out to a woman on the street words to the effect of Tell my mum where I'm going. Detective Kane recalled placing his hands on Webster's head to prevent him from hitting his head as he got into the car. Webster was then placed into handcuffs. Wilson had been located by surveillance police earlier that day at the hotel that he frequented. He was approached by detectives Plant and Paget as he was walking on the street, having left the hotel in the afternoon. According to the evidence of Detective Plant, Wilson was not arrested but came willingly with the police when he was asked. Webster and Wilson were taken from Stockton to Newcastle Police Station and placed together in the interview room that had been equipped with the listening device. 
After they had been in the interview room for one hour, they were separately interviewed by police and during the course of this interview, Webster confessed to the murder. Here's an extract of the interview. Lee got up and staggered away. I saw her pick up a bottle. It was a twist top bottle she picked up and she threw the bottle towards us. It hit the corner of the building and smashed. I saw Guy Wilson throw the twist top bottle that he had at Lee. It hit her in the leg. Why did you throw a beer bottle at her? Because it was empty. I saw Lee come into the hall and she came up to us and we were calling her a slut, mole, bitch and we poured beers all over her and spat on her and pushed her with my hands. While I was doing it, she was crying and she got up and walked out. About 10 minutes later, I saw Lee walking across the grass towards the end of the car park. She was about 20 feet away and I yelled out to her, Lee, don't go down there. She turned around and yelled at me, fuck off and leave me alone. Well, I did it, but I just couldn't believe it happened. It's just unbelievable. I went to look for my beers and I saw Lee sitting down on the grass. My beers weren't there. Somebody must have pinched them. And then I walked up to Lee and she carried on with her normal shit and I tried to get onto her. Then we walked down to the bushes and I pulled her clothes off and pulled my shorts down and put my finger in her pussy. I thought I was right for a root and then she started pushing me away saying, don't. I lost my temper and I did what I did. Can you tell us what you mean by did what you did? She was punching and pushing and I grabbed her by the throat and she said don't and I choked her a bit. She stopped punching and I grabbed the rock and killed her. After spending the weekend in a police cell, Webster appeared in the magistrate court on the 19th of February where he was refused bail. On the 21st of March, whilst in custody, Webster was convicted and fined $250 for the offensive behaviour in relation to the assault of the youth on the 28th of January. NC1 was the first of the trio to be sentenced. On the 28th of February, after pleading guilty to having sex with someone under the age of consent, he was given six months custody in a detention centre the maximum possible sentence for a youth charged with that offence. Kerry Carrington, writing in the Australian Feminist Law Journal, said, It was likely that the prosecutors did not charge NC1 with rape, as a conviction on such charge would have been unlikely due to a lack of evidence. Lee's complaints about the incident as reported by witnesses, were classed as hearsay and therefore inadmissible in court. On the 11th of May, the sentence was reduced on appeal to 100 hours of community service. In reducing his sentence, the judge stated that the evidence obliged him to find that the sex was consensual and that it was better for NC1 to do something positive for the community rather than possibly being led further astray in custody. But the Newcastle Legal Centre's Robert Kavanagh said, 
there was no shortage of evidence available to police to indicate that Lee had been raped. I quote, Her state of distress, the fact that she was crying, significantly complaining immediately after. She came back to the clubhouse and told people she'd been abused and assaulted in that way. And those complaints made by her were clearly indicative of it not being consensual. Her complaints, however, resulted in further assaults upon her and in an increasing level of severity leading to her death. If the police were unsure as to whether Lee had been raped, there was another clue in the witness statement about the young man NC1. I quote the statement of another partygoer. Early in the night, as the people were arriving, I was talking to him and he said, were all the baldies coming tonight? And I said, as far as I know, they were. The baldies are younger girls in year seven and eight at the school, which is Lee and her group of friends. From this conversation, I got the impression they were going to get them pissed and then they were going to root them. That's what I've heard they normally do. End quote. It has been explained to me that the term baldies refers to prepubescent girls. On the 19th of March, Wilson was sentenced to six months imprisonment for assaulting Lee. The trial of Matthew Webster took place on the 24th of October 1990 at the Supreme Court of New South Wales in the city of Sydney with Justice James Ronald Wood presiding. Webster pled guilty to the murder of Lee. The guilty plea meant that no witnesses were called for the trial. Detective Chaffee instead read a list of facts to the court. Lee got very drunk very quickly on bourbon and cola. She went with a 15-year-old boy to the sand dunes and had sex with him. Lee returned from the encounter distressed, sounding hysterical. Webster, Wilson and a number of other boys, one witness reported as many as ten, surrounded her, put her on the ground, rolled her around with their feet, spat beer on her head, one of them throwing a bottle as she made her escape. This was witnessed by other partygoers. No one came to help Lee. Lee wandered down the beach. Webster followed. He saw his opportunity. Webster dragged her to a hollow behind the sand dunes, sexually assaulted her, causing her horrible damage as she resisted. He tried to have sex with her, panicked, and strangled her until she was unconscious. Then he walked some metres to retrieve a six kilogram lump of concrete, hitting her many times in the head. The first blow killed her. On Wednesday the 24th of October, Justice Wood sentenced Matthew Webster to a minimum term of 14 years penal servitude, with an additional term of six years for lesser charges. Justice Wood 
found that Webster's motivation for killing Lee was the fear that she would report his sexual assault on her. Having passed sentence, Justice Wood turned his attention to the theme of parental irresponsibility. I quote, I wish to add, it is an occasion of great regret that a young man has to be sentenced to such a lengthy term of imprisonment, but it is inevitable having regard to the appalling circumstances in which the killing occurred. In that regard, I wish to repeat my observations made in the course of the proceedings, on sentence, that the greatest concern should be entertained in the community, that this party should have been permitted to go ahead without proper parental supervision. Webster was told that he should serve his sentence at Park Lee Correctional Centre, which is based in the northwest suburbs of Sydney. Webster appealed the length of his prison term to the New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeal, where Justices Gleeson, Lee and Allen dismissed his appeal in July 1992. In their view, the crime was so gross that nothing less of a very severe sentence would accord with the general moral sense of the community. Webster's first application for parole in February 2004 was denied as he had not yet undertaken work release. After completing a few months of this programme, Webster was released on parole on the 10th of June 2004 after serving 14 and a half years. Members of Lee's family told the parole board that they held no ill thoughts towards Webster and wished him well in the re-establishment of his life. Matthew's actions that night have affected so many innocent people, Robin and Jesse Lee said in a letter to the board. Both his and our families have been devastated by the tragedy. Webster's mother, having sat through the hearing with her fingers crossed, was overwhelmed by the Lee's very generous and decent attitude. We are very happy, said Josephine Webster. Now we would like to leave it as it is. Webster will not be allowed to visit his mother or any other relatives and friends in his former community. The New South Wales Parole Board stipulated that he was not to live in Stockton or the larger Newcastle area for at least six years after his release. Upon leaving prison, Webster received $500 a week for a job in the auto parts industry and lived at a halfway house in Sydney. The police were heavily criticised in the aftermath over the handling of the investigation. The complaints included their failure to identify perpetrators in a timely manner. It took the police over three months to press charges against Webster, even though they had established within ten days that he had lied about his whereabouts, had publicly stated his intention to rape Lee, and had the opportunity to commit the crime. As mentioned earlier, Associate Professor Kerry Carrington became involved in researching the murder of Lee whilst working at the University of Newcastle in 1993. 
She participated with the Newcastle Legal Centre in preparing the 1995 District Court appeal by the family of Lee from the Victims' Compensation Tribunal. At that hearing, Judge Moore made a number of findings consistent with the concerns that had been raised by Professor Carrington, the Newcastle Legal Centre and the Lee family regarding the police investigation of the events on the 3rd of November 1989. In December 1996, the New South Wales Crime Commission was asked to reinvestigate the murder and look into other offences. The Crime Commission findings were released in a March 1998 report that concluded, amongst other things, that Matthew Webster had acted alone when he committed the murder. Volume 2 of the report, which was not released publicly, reviewed the police investigation into the murder. It highlighted a number of departures from proper police practice. In March 1998, Volume 2 of the report was referred to the Police Integrity Commission by the Minister for the Police. The Commission commenced its own investigation of the matters raised in the report. That investigation was co-named Operation Belfast. In October 2000, the Belfast report was completed by the Police Integrity Commission condemning a number of the police actions on the night of Lee's murder and the subsequent three months. The report is 222 pages long and is available online should you wish to read it. It went into the police's failings into the legality of the arrests, the illegal detention of suspects and the alleged beatings that the suspects took. I've taken most of the research today from that report. Webster's parole was revoked in November 2004 after he was arrested for assault. He pleaded not guilty, citing self-defence and returned to prison. He was released again in May 2005 after the charges were dropped due to insufficient evidence. Lee would have been 44 years old this year. Her body was laid to rest in Stockton General Cemetery in New South Wales. So that's it for this week. Please remember, if you've enjoyed the show or want to know more, please follow us on Twitter at True Crime Fix Pod. I just want to extend a very grateful thank you to Ryan Horan for stepping in and playing the police officer this week. The podcast also has a Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast, but there is also a fan page, True Crime Fix Discussion. I'm thoroughly enjoying interacting with everybody on there, and this is where I post the majority of the information on the week's cases. You can also visit the new website, www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk That's www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk Also a reminder, 
that the podcast is now on Patreon, so please visit www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast. That's www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast. I also have an Instagram account, so search true crime fix. If you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, you can either leave them through the website or please contact me at truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. That's truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest, because you never know who or what will be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone. <laughs>